So before people die, every so often they'll say some, some last words. Last words can be kind of important. I mean, many people before they die can say some pretty interesting things. So I did a Google search, see what some of these people have said. Bob Marley, y'all familiar with Bob Marley? Your music people. Before he died, it's, it's, it's said that the last words that he said were, money can't buy life. It's good. For you artists, Leonardo da Vinci, he's got some interesting things to say before he died. He said, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. That's da Vinci. And of course, there's, some of you are all too familiar with this fellow, Jack Daniel. His last words, and I don't know if this is true or not, but his last words, one last drink. I don't know if he got it. My favorite comes from somebody you may not know. He, he died in 1989. He was a Scottish psychiatrist, Dr. R.D. Lang. He, he wrote a lot on psychosis in terms of existential philosophy. Evidently, he suffered a fatal heart attack out in public. And as he was lying down, some people gathered around him and somebody yelled, Get a doctor. And R.D. Lang's last words were, I am a doctor. It's okay to laugh. I thought it was funny too. Look, last words are important. In our passage this morning, you could say in some measure, these are Jesus' last words to the crowds. I know he goes on in chapters 13 through 21 in, in, uh, in, in the Gospel of John to, to speak very personally to his disciples. He says some amazing things on the cross but in some measure, these are Jesus' last words to the crowds, to people who are following him. And in some measure, these words are directed to these people who are following him for the last time. And I think one of the reasons why he says these words to them is because most of them are following him for the wrong reasons. These are the last words that Jesus says to people who are not quite confident or sure about what Jesus came to do. So I would, I would imagine the words of Jesus, at least they're probably more important than Jack Daniel. So we're going to see how John sets up Jesus' last words to the crowds and hear what he has to say. So if you have your bulletins or your Bibles, it's John chapter 12. We're going to read verse 37 through the rest of uh, chapter 12. This is God's words containing Jesus' last words to the crowds. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs, talking about Jesus, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So in the midst of this setting, verse 44, Jesus cries out and says, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. It's the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, for the prophet who has given us your word, for Jesus Christ himself who has come as the word. And I ask this morning as we delve into this passage that you would soften our hearts, that you would remind us the reality of Jesus Christ, of what he's done, of what he's doing and what he will do, and would we as your people, align our hearts to his ways. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we got two big ideas that we're going to work our way through. The first is nature, the nature of unbelief. What does it mean not to believe? We're going to talk about a couple of things in that category. It's going to be, first of all, unbelief is nothing new. We have a tendency to think that our world today, this modern, postmodern world, that skepticism is something new, but it's not. And not only that, even believers don't always believe like they need to believe. So we'll dig into that idea about what does it mean not to believe or the nature of unbelief. And then, in the context of that unbelief, we're going to see Jesus Christ. We're going to see that he comes on behalf of the Father. He comes to show forth the Father as his image. And he is the dividing line. He's the dividing line between life and death and salvation and judgment. Jesus Christ comes in the midst of unbelief and he cries out and he says, look to me. So let's look at unbelief. The nature of unbelief, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before him, they still did not believe. And up to this point, if you remember our previous sermons uh, over the, the course of the, the past, you will realize that John doesn't record all of the things that Jesus does, but he records some of the big things that Jesus does, and nobody's questioning whether or not Jesus is doing them. 
He's turned water into wine. He's healed a little boy. He's healed a paralytic. He's, he's fed 5,000 people with a handful of bread and some fish. He's walked on water. He, he's taken a blind man and made him see. And then most recently in John, according to where we are now, his friend Lazarus, who is dead, and he's really dead, he's in the grave for several days, he calls his name and he raises from the dead and Lazarus comes out. He raises a dead man. And everybody knows it, they're not in question. But just because they see these things doesn't mean they believe in Christ See, if they, if they don't understand why Jesus is doing these things, even though they can see him, even though they can hear him, it doesn't mean they will believe in him. And it's nothing new. It's happening today. It happened in Jesus' time. It happened all the way back in the garden. That's why John says in verse 38, he quotes from Isaiah, and he says, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He says from Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question. Isaiah is saying, God, you have been revealing yourself. You've been showing forth your strength, but nobody is believing. Then in verse 38, they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. It's from Isaiah 6. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And John, setting up the words of Jesus, he's saying God has always been at work. He's always been revealing himself, showing forth his glory, even even in the times of Isaiah. But they didn't want to believe in him then. And even as God becomes man in the person of Christ, they don't really want to believe in him now. And it's not new. And the reason it's not new is because the human heart is the same today as it always has been since Adam and Eve fell. And we want to say, even as we read these quotes from Isaiah, we want to say it must be God's fault. We want to blame God. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is the problem. That's exactly what was said way back in the beginning, right? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And that's what we've been saying ever since. This can't be my fault. And it is true. I don't want to soft pedal this passage. It is true. This passage says the blinding of the eyes... The hardening of the heart, they are a work of God, but it's not in the sense of blaming God. What John is trying to communicate is it's the natural result of unbelief. That when God continues to reveal his glory and people still don't want to believe, God abandons unbelieving people to themselves because they don't want to believe. They can see, they can hear, but something is stopping them from moving into belief. All you have to do is think back to the last miracle, the last sign that Jesus does in John chapter 11. Remember, that's where he raises Lazarus from the grave. John is very, very clear that everybody knew this man was dead. And after Jesus calls his name, everybody knows Lazarus is alive. And then in John chapter 12, after that... The family gives Jesus a party, a celebration. 
because of what he did. And you realize even at the same time that they're giving that party, you know what the chief priests are planning to do? They're making plans to kill Jesus and Lazarus. After this great miracle, why? Why is it that after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they want to kill him? And it's really important for us to understand the why because understanding the why moves us from that ancient world that Jesus lived and Isaiah lived. It moves us from there to where we are today, the similarities with our world and their world. Because it is true. We don't live in a world anymore where Jesus is literally physically raising people from the dead for the most part. There are, I, will, I will suggest to you that Jesus is still raising people from the dead, but it's not like it was when he was here walking on earth. But you have to understand, Jesus wasn't just raising Lazarus from the dead for his present life. Jesus is not raising people from the dead right now simply for our present life. He's doing it for the world to come. He's doing it to bring in a whole new world. And in both worlds, whether it's when Jesus is walking on the earth, when Isaiah is back claiming or proclaiming God's kingdom, in both worlds, Jesus comes to turn the world upside down, to change everything. And normal people don't do what Jesus does. And if Jesus keeps doing what he's doing, everything's going to be different. And for those people who like things the way they are, for those people who think they know the way their life ought to be, we're going to say, Jesus, you're okay, but only up to a point. And yeah, maybe we're not trying to kill Jesus, but at least at a minimum... We're changing who Jesus is because of who we want him to be. We at least try to make him into somebody different. And then when things don't work out, what do we say? This can't be my fault. We want to blame God. The nature of unbelief, it's the same today as it was a thousand years ago. We want to determine what our lives look like. I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. I have a plan for my life. We want to determine what our lives look like. And if someone might get in the way, even if it's God, then there's something inside us that wants to blame someone other than ourselves. And I'm going to submit to you this morning, it's not bad to be there for a little bit. It's pretty normal. We're, we're fallen human beings. We're not first going to think that, oh, this must be my fault. But I will tell you, if you stay there too long, in our arrogance, in our pride, in our self-sufficiency, you know what God says? Keep on hearing, you won't understand. Keep on seeing, you will never perceive. But what you have to see here is Jesus Christ in the midst of these people who have hard hearts. Jesus comes. God is still revealing himself. But it's not only these people with really hard hearts. There's another group of people. Even believers don't always believe. Verse 42. 
Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's more complex than it looks. John is not telling us that some people don't believe and some people do believe. He's giving us a general picture of what unbelief might look like. He's showing us that if you really do believe and not simply see Jesus, that a radical choice is necessary to follow Christ. If you really believe, to move from seeing to believing, and this is where it gets hard. There are a lot of people who say they love God. But John is saying it's inadequate if you love praise from men more than from God. What does it mean to to love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Does it mean we're not saved? I'm not saying that. Nobody says that. But I know that it means that we have to think about what it means to seek the glory of God more than the glory of man. And I think the first thing that we need to think about is if you've really seen Jesus and you have really believed in Jesus and you trust Jesus, the first thing is to actually realize that you struggle with this. Seeking praise and glory from men more than from God. If you haven't struggled with this, if you're not struggling with this even today, if you're just coasting through life and you, know, you have no qualms about how you're living, if you're the one that always is saying, that's just the way I am, you're going to have to get used to it then you're probably seeking the glory of man more than the glory of God. People who have seen Jesus will struggle with this desire that is in our hearts, seeking the glory of man more than the glory of God. Not only that, secondly, you need to think about that struggle. What specifically or who specifically are you trying to make happy? Are you living for yourself? Maybe you say, it's, it's not me, I'm living for my spouse or I'm living for my children. That's where I, I think of the man that comes to me and he tells me, you know, if my wife would only do this, then our marriage would be really good. And I respond, so you're ready for your wife to change so that your marriage will be good. What do you live for? What are you seeking to do with your life? A good way to answer this question is, because I know you guys like to do stuff. At least that's what I hear. So keep a log of where you spend your extra time and your extra money. I'm not talking about your tithe. I'm talking about after you tithe. What do you do with your extra time? What do you do with your extra money? Because what you do with your money and what you do with your time, it's a good indicator of what's most important. Seeking the glory of man or the glory of God. So you struggle, you think, but there's one more thing. What are you doing to make sure that God is more important than anything else? To make sure that God is more honored in your life than anybody or anything else? Are you taking steps to make sure that God comes first? It's not just thinking about it. It's not just struggling and then thinking. But it does come down at some point to actually doing I'll share this with you. This is one of the things that I've been struggling with over the the past month or so. If anything distracts you from knowing Jesus more, are you willing to get rid of it? 
Are you willing to get rid of it? I thought of a, a friend of mine when I was thinking of this point. It's perfect for Georgia, Florida weekend, and I realize most of the people that need to hear this are not <laughs> here. But I knew a man that for 10 years quit watching college football because his Saturdays always impacted his Sundays, either for good or for bad, based on whether or not his team won. And I know what some of you women are saying, oh, those petty guys, I can't believe that they would let college football ruin their life like that. He was willing to give it up for 10 years. And we all have something in our lives that are distracting us from knowing Jesus more. And are you making excuses? Or are you willing to, to, to discard it? So you're to struggle, you're to think, and then you're to act if you're to really understand what it means to seek the glory of man versus the glory of God. And I need you to understand the context here. Look at the context. The people in this passage who were seeking the glory of man, they were afraid of the Pharisees and they were afraid to get kicked out of the synagogue. And I know you're not afraid of Pharisees and you're not afraid of being kicked out of the uh, synagogue, but the point here is they were afraid not to fit into their little community, to in, in their little world. They were afraid to be different. And because they were afraid to be different than the rest of the world, their world, they didn't confess Christ. They were more concerned with what other people thought of them than what God thought. But if you and I were living in their day, this is what it would look like. It meant they were going to be looked down upon by the people that they would come across, that they would be scoffed at. People were going to say mean things to them. If they, and I know they didn't at the time, but if they would have sent their kids off to school, their kids would have come back crying because their friends would have made fun of them because of what they believed. They, whatever privileges they may have had, they would have lost them. Some of their friends wouldn't have had them over for dinner. They might not have been able to do something they really enjoyed. I'm trying to make you understand that these people that are following Jesus, and we have a tendency to look down upon them, we're more like them than we would like to admit. Here's where the rubber meets the road, seeking God's glory more than the glory of man. And I do realize what I'm saying is I'm going to step on a lot of your toes, but that's okay because I don't think it's me. I think it's God's word. If you're going to seek the glory of God more than the glory of man, maybe that means you won't be able to do something you want to do on the Lord's day. Here's another true story of a friend of a friend of mine. He knew a young man who decided he was evidently a very good, good soccer player. And he was moving from the high school, not even to the collegiate, but to the semi-pro leagues, whatever that is in soccer. I, I, you have to ask Michael Hansen about this. But he decided not to do it because he learned that everybody practiced or played soccer on Sunday, games or practice. And all his friends and many of his family, they, they said... He was being ridiculous not to follow his dreams. You know that, and this is a man, an 18-year-old man. This, this is what this 18-year-old man said. I'm not following a dream. I'm following a person. And he's not playing soccer today. And he's smart enough to know that, oh, I probably wouldn't have played soccer anyway. 
But he wasn't following a dream. He was following a person. Maybe that means you won't get the girl or the guy that you want. Maybe that means you will never get married. Maybe that means you will have to stay in a marriage that is not necessarily that good. Maybe that means you won't get the job you want with the money that you think you need. Maybe your kids won't like many of the decisions that you make for them. Maybe that means your, your friends won't think you're cool. And then I was talking to somebody earlier this morning, and it's, it's not cool to be cool anymore. So let's say it like this. Maybe there'll be a time in your life where you won't have any friends. And I, I don't want you to think I'm being insensitive or I'm being harsh. I've seen too many people walk in that door today and in church this morning where life has been really, really hard for them and they're still here. And praise God for that. But Jesus never did come and say, follow me because your life is going to be really easy now. In fact, he said just the opposite. The question is, am I willing to give up my own desires for my life? What other people may think of me? And am I willing to respond to who Jesus is and what he's coming to do and live the life he's given us, even if we don't think it's the best life for us now? This is the place where Jesus comes before he goes off to spend time with his disciples. And he comes and he cries out and he does not let these people go without coming to them one more time. It's in the midst of these different types of unbelief, whether you have hard hearts, whether you have muddled hearts, whether you're struggling or whether it's even good right now, Jesus comes and he keeps coming and he cries out and he says this, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. This is what we need to see as we struggle with our hard hearts. And we should be struggling with our hard hearts. We should be struggling with our unbelieving hearts. We should be struggling with, yes, I want the glory of man more than the glory of God, but I want to see God. What you need to see first is that Jesus comes on behalf of the loving Father. He comes as the executor or the go-between or the mediator. You can call whatever you want it. But it's, that, it's the person, the Son of God, who comes in between the hard hearts and the holy God. And he says, I'm here to bring you to, into the presence of the Father in the midst of this hard world. If you're going to truly believe, if you're going to confess him to the world, if you want to seek God's praise more than man... You have to see that Jesus continues to come on behalf of the Father because a vague belief in God will not do it. God is not abstract. He's not an idea. He's personal. It's very easy for us to say, I believe in God. It is a whole other thing to say, I am following Jesus. Following Jesus is concrete, it's specific, and it's going to look different for you than it does for me. But that's why Jesus is crying out. He comes on behalf of the Father, and secondly, he comes as the image of the Father. If Isaiah saw God's glory, how much more should we see God's glory 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ come as a man. He's not only the way to God, but he's the visible presence of God himself come down to show forth how much the Father loves hard-hearted and muddle-hearted people. Look, this is the way I want to say it. You can't continue to blame God when you see God himself in the person of Jesus going to the cross to die for you. It's part of what it means when Jesus is speaking about the light. Light is transforming. Light is clarifying. You can't see or do anything in the dark. But when you see the light, you are changed. So God, God, the, God the Son, Jesus Christ, comes on behalf of the Father. He comes to show you the Father. And lastly, he's the dividing line. He's the dividing line between life and death and salvation and judgment. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words, I'm going to put in here, he already has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. The Father has himself told him what to say and told him what to speak. And Jesus says, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So this is the last thing that you need to see. Jesus doesn't come to judge the world or to judge me and you, not because there's not judgment out there. He comes to save us from the judgment that is already ours because of our hard hearts. In reaction to the world's unbelief, in reaction to my unbelief, in reaction to your unbelief, Jesus doesn't cancel himself out, but he comes and he confronts the world with the truth of his words, and he says, I have come to save you out of this. Jesus comes to save us out of hard hearts and unbelieving hearts and the trouble that we have in this earth and to move us into a whole new world so that we can live in this life the best way that we can because something better is coming. God has come to save the world in the person of Jesus Christ to give us hope, to give us strength. We've sung about it all morning. Are those just words to you? Because you can see the words, you can sing the words, but if you don't believe the words, you're stuck in your own place. And the whole purpose of this worship service is to remind you that Jesus Christ comes to you exactly where you are, whether you be hard-hearted, whether you're struggling. And he cries out and he says, I am here and I love you. And yes, I'll take you through some hard things. But he does say, I am worth it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We can all confess we have hard hearts. We can all confess that we struggle with unbelieving hearts. But if you've not only seen Jesus, but you believe in Jesus, he will take you exactly where you, where you need to go, and he will never let go of you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ this morning. I do pray 
I pray that we would not only see him and hear about him, but that we would meet him personally, that we'd place our trust in him. Um, For those who already believe, for those who don't believe, would we see Jesus Christ? Would we believe in him? And would you move us from death to life, move us from judgment into salvation? And Father, would you do that even now as we come to the Lord's table and meet with Jesus Christ himself? Amen.